0: You're listening to the ESP, the European Skeptics Podcast, an independent weekly show set out to bring you news, interesting topics and interviews with people mostly from Europe, building bridges and breaking down language barriers to show the world how active and awesome the skeptical movement is in the region. This is episode 241. I'm your host, András Pinter, and joining me for the show are my co-hosts, Anika Harrison and Pontus Böckmann. See you Hello. Hey, San, hey, son, everyone. Welcome back, Annika
1: thank you for having me back <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah we missed you last week <laughs> yeah, we did indeed
1: i missed you guys but it was a very good interview i have to say ah
2: good thank you <laughs> i'm glad you approved.
1: <laughs> it's it's like annika approved you've got like the check mark there yeah actually i
2: got this oh, okay. i got the feedback uh, from several people now that the last couple of episodes we've had and it's been i think the last four episodes have been very good and it's because we've had very good people to interview so uh I don't know what people say maybe we should do more interviews we've had Adam Rutherford Martin Morder, Brian Deere, and last week it was Gabor Kemeneshi it was it's been good good people so let us know if you want us to do more of those
0: yeah, and if you have uh, good suggestions, uh, we are always open for them. Oh, yeah. Because we, we're probably not familiar enough with all the, the, the skeptics out there who do uh, fantastic work, but their story is probably worth sharing with, uh, with all our listeners. So... That's what we are here for. So if you if you want us to interview someone, then uh, please let us know. Yeah, yeah, we are here to promote stuff that's going on uh, in different countries, new books, new projects, and uh, Pontus, I hear that you have a new project of some sort.
2: Ah, uh, yes, if I may, if I may, very humbly tease a little project that I've been working on <laughs> for a couple of years, actually, off and on. Uh, what I've done is I've written a sci-fi novel. Have you indeed? Yeah, yeah. It's not exactly finished, but uh, <laughs> all the chapters are there. <laughs> okay. So I finished the story. Now it's being edited and there will be a second round of editing as well with a couple of people I know. So so it's not quite there, but yeah. But I believe that before the end of the year, uh, it will actually be out as an ebook. book And um, hmm uh, then we will see if there will be some printed copies as well. That depends on how, how well people like it. So, as I said, it's a sci fi novel and it's called The Duma, D-O-O-M-A. And I will explain what that is. The, the back story is that there is this uh, big space expedition from Earth, about 300 people on this ship, and they've just arrived at the planet uh, many light years away they've landed there when they are hit by a Carrington event. Do we need to explain what a Carrington event is? Yes yes, please <laughs> Yes all right people may not be aware, but that is when a solar flare from the sun or from the the nearby star comes directly towards. The planet and it's actually happened here on earth as well Mm -hmm. in the 1800s at one point which is why they call it the carrington event after i don't know if it was after a guy or if uh, after a place but what happens if that happens is that all electrical things you know basically burns up immediately Mm -hmm. Uh, It's it's similar to an EMP, which can happen after a nuclear blast. So anyway, it hits this planet. It's very rare that it happens, but it happens to hit this planet exactly when they have landed. So all of their stuff stops working. They have uh, no technology. They're stuck light years away from home and have no way of getting back. And um, on top of that, they have to, to fight the local wildlife, especially these Duma, which I mentioned, the name of the book, which are huge and intelligent pterodactyl-like animals. And human colony is almost wiped out before, for unknown reasons, the Duma suddenly go away. And
0: this is just the
2: background. <laughs> Sorry. No, uh, okay.
0: <laughs> okay. I was going to say, you probably shouldn't tell the whole story, but at that is then, this is just the background. No, okay. No, okay. no this is just the background <laughs>
2: because the actual book starts 500 years later. <gasps> okay. When most of this history has been forgotten by the people and they still have no concept of uh, modern technology because they forget forgot everything. And even the Duma is just a, a legend by now. But then some of them start to uncover their high-tech history, uh, even if they don't really understand what it is. And as they start to uncover that, of course, the Duma return. <laughs> so that that is the start of the book. So, so uh, I hope people will <laughs> like it. I've said a couple of times in private that I wanted to write a book that I myself wanted to read. So for a long time there, I was very curious about <laughs> how it would end. Of course, now I know, but uh, you don't. So... We'll see. I'll come back and and, and give updates on how it all uh, comes along. And eventually, I hope people will read it and enjoy it (sighs) and help spreading the word. I have a cover, so I have a book and I have a cover. I will put the picture among the show notes, just as a small
0: picture that if people are curious to ask, just as a teaser okay that's good that sounds good absolutely right. uh mm-hmm. i for one cannot wait to get my hands on uh, one of the copies yeah i mean i know it's uh, gonna be only electronic copies and um, mm-hmm. uh, if no one else buys it i will definitely do that
1: oh i will too <laughs> good
0: oh i have two sold copies already great <laughs> pre pre-orders <laughs>
2: all right all right uh, andras i just want to mention you has you have been uh, busy as well a little bit uh, you were on uh, the skeptic zone last week
0: oh yeah 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 that's right i was just like <laughs> i was the week before so it's, yeah it's fun so was that uh,
1: dr he- andras <laughs>
0: no i i wasn't i wasn't i was just andres and that was the secret of the secret convention that it was all about and uh, <laughs> when you listen to um, yeah obviously you should all listen to the skeptic zone if you don't do it yet but if you listen to the latest episode then uh, you will hear that some somewhere in the middle of uh, the the episode um it's a couple of minutes long it's uh it was great fun. Really well written and it was really good fun uh, recording it. So uh, thank, thank you very much, Richard, for, for doing it. And uh, these, these are the new funny segments. I mean, it started not too long ago and I think it's a great addition to the Skeptic Zone. All right, before we move on to the, our regular segments, some of which have not changed since the beginning, <laughs> I'd like to draw everyone's attention to something. So the guys at Cheek Up, these guys are absolutely insane, I have to say. Last year's Chickup Fest, where I was one of the, the speakers, it was a massive hit, not because of me, but it provided food for thought for as much as 12,000 people over a weekend in September. So there were lots of freely available talks and activities. Somewhere, were registered participants only. And as I told you back then, the whole city of Padova was in motion for the for the duration of the weekend. It was amazing. It was all about science and scepticism and, and curiosity. This time, due to the COVID-19 situation, of course, they decided to go online and do more than in the previous year, if that's even possible, in collaboration with the university and the city of Padova, the region of Veneto, the Ministry of Education and Research of Italy, and other large-scale organizations, they are offering a completely free line of separate events and 185 speakers, presenters, and panelists over the course of, wait for it, three bloody weeks wow. and four weekends. Wow. <laughs> So if there is something that I'd like to compare it to, I think it's what um, Edinburgh Skeptics do at the Edinburgh Fringe Festival. Mm -hmm. But they do it with live events over the course of a couple of weeks uh, while the festival is on. But this will be a continuation of an already massive large-scale event in Italy. From the 25th of September all the way up to the 18th of October they will be offering things to follow all day long. If you only try to browse through the lineup, it will already blow your mind. So <laughs> it's, it's it's amazing. It will mostly be for, for those who understand Italian, though. Uh, but I saw Jim Al-Khalili among the speakers as well, Ooh. so check the, that one out for sure, even if your Italian is a little bit rusty. <laughs> and the festival has its own title as well. And it is the challenges here now, restarting with science, facing change, the unexpected and the improbable. So it has the the little bit of a COVID-19 related sounding title, but then it's vague enough so that it can embrace all of science and curiosity. It's amazing. So I can't begin to imagine what a massive task it will be to pull it off. Coordinating speakers, moderating, making sure that every technical detail is in order. But the organizing committee, headed by Massimo Polidoro, doesn't fail to amaze on a constant basis. I have a hunch that our friends among them, uh, including Paola de Gobbi, who, mm-hmm. who's on the board of EXO with us, yeah. Enrico Zabeo and Sonia Ciampoli, who uh, do Radio Cheek Up together, as well as Massimo himself. I'm pretty sure they are too busy now to listen to our, our show, but let me wish them a great and highly successful festival of science and curiosity guys you are our heroes so Chickup fest between the 25th of september and the 18th of october for more information visit chickupfest.it but with that highly elevating line of topics that we covered so far i think it's uh time for us to move on and do our regular show all of which always have to start with what happened this week in skepticism so monica so, Annika, would you mind enlightening us, please?
1: Sure. Yeah. So this week we actually have a little bit of a birthday because the European Council of Skeptical Organizations.
0: Never heard of that. <laughs>
1: yeah, no, nah, we never heard of that. All none of us. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, it was founded this week, twenty-six years ago, on the twenty-fifth oh of September, nineteen ninety-four. So, if EXO would be a person, they wouldn't be regarded as a young adult anymore.
0: <laughs> <laughs> right.
1: And for those of, of our listeners who maybe are new to the show, EXO is an umbrella organization for skeptical organizations in Europe. Hmm. Yeah, uh, the headquarters of EXO are in Rostov in Germany, and the president, the current president is Claire Kringberg, somebody we all know and really like. And they also organized the European Skeptics Congress. And the next ESC will already be the 19th. Hmm. So we are all very excited for that, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> I think apart from that, we all we all know EXO. We all like EXO. <laughs> I will just mention some founding members were Amadeus Sama, for example. Tim um, Trache, I think he's uh, pronounced like that, or Michael Haugate. And the presidents so far have been um, Cornelis de Jacher, Amadeo Sama, Gabo Raschko, and since 2017, our beloved Claire Kraulik Klingenberg. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I don't know. I look, also looked at the board, and I know that there are some people also on the board. So maybe you guys would enlighten us.
0: <laughs> mm, uh, yeah. Don't know anything about that. <laughs> no, no, no. But, to be uh, serious, Anders and myself are there. So, yeah, yeah, we're both there, along with, um, yeah, you mentioned Claire Crowley-Klingenberg as the president, Tim Trache from uh, SCAP in Belgium, Uh, Catherine de Jong from uh, the Netherlands, Uh, Amardeo Sarma, the president of your organization, GWP, Paula de Gobi from Chicap. I mentioned her earlier, Uh, Michael Heap from ASCII from the United Kingdom and Jean-Paul Crevin uh, from AFIS in France. So that's all the board members along with Pontus and myself. So how how EXO works, we have regular meetings or semi-regular meetings (laughs) of of the board uh, where we try to, first of all, we get involved in organizing the European Skeptics Congresses. We try to uh, work as a hub for all the skeptical organizations that are member organizations. So now we're still in a phase of uh, trying to clear things up uh, from the past, because one of the most important difficulties that an organization like this faces is that uh, it's all voluntary. So it's it's like we, we all do this in our virtually non-existent free time. That can be an issue, but we try to harmonize everything that we do Uh, we have plans for the future to publish articles and uh, and all that stuff so uh, we are open for uh, collaborations with uh, organizations outside of the realm of exo as well so um, yeah that's basically what exo does
1: yeah, it's it's really cool and I think I just um, I just did the math and when the 20th ESC happens, EXO will also turn 30. So I think that might be a huge party, right? Yeah, probably. <laughs> so we I think we'll just all see you there, dear listeners. And Absolutely.
0: Yeah. <laughs> and yeah, sure. until yeah.
1: then, we just wish EXO a happy birthday, a happy 26th. And yeah, keep on with the good work. <laughs>
0: And if you want to find out more about the organization, go online and uh, find exo.org. E-C-S-O dot All right. So thank you very much, Onika. Thank you. I I think that's that's a reason to celebrate Definitely. already this week. <laughs> but uh, let's see what the Pope has to be poked for. Puntus. <laughs> <laughs> Yes,
2: there has been a couple of things due to the fact that we had uh, an interview last week. Uh, so, uh, but actually I would want to go back at, in time a little bit first because there's a new book out by Helen Fry called MI9, A History of the Secret Police for Escape and Evasion in World War II. Quite a long title there. And in that book, it is revealed that the Vatican quite a few times actually helped allied pilots and others who had ended up in Italy uh, to escape uh, to the Allied side. And uh, they were in secret contact with MI9 in the UK and helped smuggle them back across enemy lines. And it's quite interesting. And I think it gives another view of Pope Pius XII, who is otherwise nicknamed Hitler's Pope. However, the review that I read of the book ends with saying that the book, quote, doesn't fully exonerate the Vatican's actions in World War II, end quote. And also that there are unanswered questions about the support of of uh, church officials for the so-called rat lines that ferried fleeing Nazis to Latin America. So I guess they were playing a little bit on both sides, but uh, uh, there are uh, more behind it than perhaps we know. And um, speaking of that... Uh, There will be more known in the future because the archives from that period were declassified uh, this spring. And some information has now started to come to light from from that declassification. For one thing, there was one unknown memo found that showed that Pius XII was advised not to protest when Gestapo rounded up a thousand Jews in Rome and sent them to Aus- Auschwitz. And uh, it's been proved before that he knew a lot of what was going on in Germany. I don't want to excuse the guy, but uh, it probably wasn't a very easy situation to be in. The little Vatican there in the middle of Italy, and then also being invaded by uh, Nazi Ger- Germany. I-, I don't think they actually went into the Vatican, but they were surrounded by Nazis there at the at the point. So. Not an easy situation to be in, but the analysis of these archives have been delayed because of the pandemic, so I'm sure there are more things that we will learn later on. But maybe we should go back to more current affairs. There was a new survey of Catholic orders in Germany, Annika, Yay. Uh, and that found, <laughs> <laughs> no, don't don't jay yet, because it found. Over a thousand new abuse cases. Not yet. No, that is really terrible. Uh, and unfortunately, that just makes a footnote in, the to- in, in today's news. So we're so used to hearing about it. So it doesn't even register. But isn't it amazing? we heard this many, many times lately that they just send out surveys to the diocese just asking, by the way, have you had any sex abuse cases that we don't know about and the answers come back in in hundreds and thousands that's, i think that's it's probably amazing I, would, I
1: think it's because people want to talk about it but they usually don't have the like usually people are not open no. to talk about it so they
2: don't volunteer it yeah. but if you ask they will, will they have these lists they know they know so the question is why haven't they sent out these surveys 10, 20, 30 years ago and maybe they could have stopped a lot of those. So Papa Francesco himself, uh, Francis, he um, uh, has also been up to a few things. He did take his name from Francis of Assisi and now he will go to the town of Assisi on the 3rd of October to celebrate Holy Mass at the tomb of his namesake and then he will sign an encyclical. Uh, which is a papal document, uh, a pope letter, if you will, to call for brotherhood to endure the pandemic. It will be called Fratelli Tutti, uh, which means all brothers, and this time it wasn't just me who picked up on the exclusion of all the sisters. What what the hell? <laughs> <laughs> what Why is it just the Fratelli? <laughs> uh, there's been a lot of criticism, actually, against the Vatican and against Francis about this last couple of weeks, but the Vatican has replied that the Fratelli tutti is a direct quote from a text from Francis of Assisi himself, and it would be wrong to misquote him. I'm not so sure I buy that. I mean, be a man for once, Francis, and include all humanity, maybe. He also likes his saint, Francis, and he is underway to get himself the first ever internet saint, believe it or not. (laughs) This is a boy, or a young man, I should say, called uh, Carlos Acutis. He was from Italy, who died in 2006 from leukemia. Of course, tragic. But he is famous for starting a database on the net when the Internet was very, well, very early on on the Internet era. And um, a database that documented all cases that he had heard about regarding miracles connected to the Eucharist or the Holy Crackers, as I holy crackers, yes. Them. <laughs> yeah. So this is something that Francis is very much a fan of, the, the communion. So in October, Carlos Acutis will be beatified by Francis, which is the last formal step before you actually make somebody a saint. So someday we may have a Saint Carlos, patron of the internet, and I guess he is the one who will watch over that holy Minecraft server that they have. <laughs> somebody has to do it. <laughs> yeah.
1: Then they all have like these little pictures of him in front of their computers.
0: Yes. Mm. <laughs> all right. Thank you very much for poking the Pope once again, Pontus. Thank you. And let's move on to catching up with COVID-19. Well, with AstraZeneca and Oxford University's joint vaccine development project back on track, the world is expecting viable vaccines to be available in a few months from now. Hooray, wow, wow, all optimistic. Woohoo. But it, it might be a little bit too too optimistic. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> but we have to bear in mind that it's not the only project currently running phase three trials. So there is room for optimism, but cautious optimism is advised. While science is racing to fight the pandemic, obviously, with lots of dead ends along the way, then the virus is raging on. And by, by dead ends, I mean it results in a lot of a ridiculously high number of retractions. Hmm. Uh, so far, as of this recording, there have been 33 retractions related to COVID-19 and the number grows by the day. So it's unbelievable how much crappy science is involved in the COVID-19 related research. Uh, but g- going back to what what's happening, how the virus is raging on, uh, it seems like previously related safe countries or or countries rendered safe or um, thought to be safe uh, with low infection rates are now catching up including countries like hungary the czech republic slovakia and slovenia some argue that at least in the case of hungarian and czech prime ministers you know orban and babish it might be due to a certain leadership style because they are much more concerned with the looks of things than making actual efforts to tackle the pandemic and it's basically part of everyday conversations now in hungary how ridiculous the steps that the government makes are to tackle the, the the pandemic some of them really don't make any sense whatsoever and others they are only to display some kind of political agenda mm-hmm. yeah it's like all the world is outside of our green zone that is uh, w- one uh, example and uh, they how they communicated it is that uh, Obviously the virus was uh, brought in from outside of the country and uh, it's the only thing that they didn't say is that it's an immigrant virus that's that's the only thing that, that was not said actually. Uh, but it seems like in in this uh, second wave as many like to call it does not come with uh, such high numbers of death uh, at least not when we look at the case fatality rate or, or CFR. That's the number of deaths relative to the overall number of confirmed cases. It doesn't show much, actually. Globally, it's currently at 3%, which means that it, it was lowered significantly from the beginning, from um, uh, periods of around April and May. And estimates are that the actual risk of dying might be between one fifth and one tenth of this number. So either way, the claims that it doesn't kill more than 0.1%, Of those who get infected is absolutely misleading because it's at least uh, five times that uh, based on current knowledge. One of the reasons why the case fatality rate could be decreasing might be that there are much more tests being conducted but the other is probably that there are more young people getting infected which is most likely due to a decreasing level of compliance with uh, regulations and recommendations due to COVID fatigue or, or crisis fatigue if you like. So people just don't like adhering to the rules and recommendations. They don't give a damn because they think that it's all a hoax. They tend to think that it's uh, blown out of proportion. So they choose not to be very compliant. But this doesn't mean we can relax just because young people will not die in large numbers even if they're infected. That might be true, but the virus doesn't care who it infects. And those young people, even if asymptomatic, still pose a risk to the elderly, of course, the sick and the immunocompromised. Although the numbers don't seem to be rising that fast as before, we already have about 1 million people counted as fatal victims of this pandemic. And we know for a fact that those numbers could be very inaccurate. One recent example of that is Russia, where there are significant discrepancies when you compare official COVID-19 death counts with reported excess death within the same period. Mm. And by significant, I mean more than a threefold difference there is. Yeah. So that's a little bit suspicious.
2: (laughs) Yeah, we saw the same situation, uh, I think, a month or maybe more ago from from Spain, where they had to adjust with almost doubling. Well, they didn't adjust the numbers, actually, but they just noted that they had, like... uh, I don't know if maybe it was like 40,000 excess deaths, but they only had 25,000 COVID
0: only. I'm saying only. Yeah. Uh, 25,000 covid deaths and yeah. and russian officials yeah. claim that their classification of causes of death is highly accurate more so than for other nations and they invoked the usual died with covid not of covid argument yeah. which we've we've heard many many times but it seems like they don't coordinate their reports that well actually on the 4th of september Roststadt, it's the, the russian state statistics service released the data regarding the period between may and july this year where they reported fifty-seven thousand eight hundred excess deaths compared to the same three-month period from between 2015 and 2019 so that was the baseline uh the period between 2015 and 2019 and they compared the excess death to that but the country's official covid19 death count for the same three month of this year was a little bit short of sixteen thousand, so less than one third of the excess death so how can you explain an excess death yeah other than the raging mm. pandemic so the excess death the concept of excess death is exactly that that sometimes you just don't know how to distinguish between different uh, causes of death but it tells you a lot about the current situation if you look at how many more people died than the same time previous year or in a long-term trend in the same period. So that was 16,000 that they reported. And in fact, they still only report 19,000 deaths overall for the whole of the pandemic and more than uh, 1.1 million infected people. So something is really off. And the other end of the spectrum there is, is Sweden. With its absolutely fascinating but mostly un- unexplained roller coaster of, of death toll statistics <laughs> over yeah. the last couple of months, so what's yeah. going on there, Pontus? Uh, yeah, you, sent, you sent sent me a, yeah. an article, but it was in Swedish, and uh, the, 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 the <laughs> Google Translate just didn't do, do do a good job. So yeah, what what well, happened? I think <laughs> that the, the bottom
2: line is what I've said before uh, many times here is that statistics is hard, mm-hmm. but Sweden is pretty good at statistics. And if you look at up to the end of June, we had in Sweden 5,500 people dying in excess of a normal year. So yeah, yeah. 5,500 excess deaths, which is pretty much exactly the number of people reported died by COVID. Oh, So that, that makes a lot of sense. However, after that, it turned and um, now we are in negative excess deaths if if you will uh, which is of course very strange uh, in uh, if at first glance i mean the last week of august saw 200 uh, less deaths than expected in one week oh wow okay so what what the hell is <laughs> going on so now we are not dying we're actually living longer because of the pandemic is is that possible <laughs> well it is possible in a way because Uh, What they are saying is that a lot of people would have died of other things, Mm -hmm. but they died earlier this year because of COVID. They would have died in, in the flu or other things. And so since a lot of people have died already, less people are dying now when almost... Well, I wouldn't say that nobody is dying of COVID anymore, but it's usually around ten or twenty per week
0: now in the reports so you're saying the most vulnerable people have already died at the first half of the year exactly uh, exactly uh, okay so so those of us
2: who are still here we we are not as vulnerable anymore so uh, that's why we have lower number of deaths than normally in that particular
0: period in the week of very interesting yeah so yeah it's still sad because um i have a feeling that the overall the number of of people who died probably wouldn't have reached the overall number uh over the course of the year so it's the pandemic is definitely an additional cause of death yes above things that we usually have so yeah We we
2: we still have more deaths than a normal year. Yeah. But right now, if you look at the situation right now, the the deaths just occurred earlier this year. Yeah. Yeah. And it's still more than it would have been. So. um, Yeah. But that just tells you again that statistics are hard, and if you just look at numbers, you can get very easily confused because it's hard. You have to think through what are the connections between those numbers. Yeah. Yeah. But it's true that we have. Uh, The flu uh, hasn't been very hard this year. It's not just in Sweden because of all of the the precautions our people are taking. A lot of other diseases have been held back. Uh, It's it's still not not a positive thing, of course. That's not what I'm saying. But there are other factors there that you have to count.
1: Maybe we should just always wear masks, right?
0: (laughs) Maybe. How about that? This is what, uh, what happened after, after uh, SARS um, in Southeast Asia, actually. Mm-hmm. After SARS and um, the troubles that it caused, people started wearing masks when in public. Yeah. And that, that has become a habit for them. Mm. And a year ago, you could spot the Asian people at an airport because they were all wearing masks. Mm. And that's just normal for them now and uh, it's becoming normal for everyone apparently so yeah there are lots of things to understand but um, we need to be very careful when we try to interpret the numbers that's for sure so with the COVID-19 mostly out of the way I think, uh, no, 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 I mean, uh, when it comes to topics that we we have to talk about. uh, (laughs) Well, we have a few coming up. Yeah, so uh, we have a few uh, COVID-19 related ones as well. But uh, yeah, let's talk about what's happened in the last two weeks across Europe. There is a screenshot
2: that I have been making the rounds on Twitter. Uh, It shows a printout or a PDF uh, from uh, the World Integrated Trade Solution, or WITS. And it proves that dozens of nations imported and exported items labelled COVID-19 test kits already in 2018, more than a year before the pandemic and before COVID-19 had an official name. And this must mean that these countries knew about the pandemic before it happened, and therefore it must have been planned. So the pandemic must be man-made and it's all a conspiracy. Now, what's wrong with this theory? Snopes.com looked into this to find out what's going on. And the screenshot is in fact genuine and it is correct. However, it is based on classification codes issued by WCO or the World Customs Organization, who works to standardize statistics about international trade and such things. And to make it easier to track crucial medical equipment connected to COVID-19 or needed because of COVID-19, they changed the name of a code, which was the 902780, to read COVID-19 diagnostic test instruments and apparatus, which included things like diagnostic tools uh, that existed before 2019. It now also includes products that have been specifically created and modified for COVID-19. But if you ran a report about 2018, the statistics showed up with a new name on the screen. So the WCO realized the confusion uh, and have now renamed the code again. So now it simply is called medical tests. So that's neutral and fine. But of course, this explanation will not convince the conspiracy theorists. How can you buy this obvious fake explanation, Pontus? (laughs) Well, I personally go to our old friend Occam's Razor, which is about choosing the explanation that requires the least number of assumptions. So if you believe that this screenshot shows a conspiracy, You also say that big organizations, that WCO and the WITS and all the countries that use this classification system, which is pretty much all countries in the world, and this includes thousands, hundreds of thousands of people who all knew about this secret plan and nobody blew the whistle and they were so skilled in covering everything up that nobody suspected anything and yet everybody bought and sold COVID-19 tests all over the world it just doesn't make sense mm. the simpler explanation is that wco made a not so well thought maneuver and and renamed something and that had retrospective uh complications when you ran reports for for a previous year and now they changed it back and that that's it
0: and they they probably never even thought of of that being uh in the focus of anyone else outside of their realm because exactly why would anyone be interested in in such categorizations of trade yeah. related eh. codes whatever
2: <laughs> who cares yeah, maybe <clears> they <throat> should
0: have thought about that this could look
2: suspicious but yeah then that's co- incompetence and i I'm, I'm very much more in favor of blaming incompetence than worldwide conspiracies including hundreds of thousands of people who all are very very well coordinated that's not very likely it's much more likely that somebody just screws up once in a while
0: uh yeah it's it's uh, it's what we call hanlon's uh, razor right so never attribute to malice that's right that which is adequately explained by stupidity so yes oh, <laughs> so <laughs> right it's just an, such a powerful rule of thumb but i think there are nuances in communicating ideas as well so uh with something that was supposed to be hidden from anyone else outside of that specific field because no one cares uh there are certain fields of science that that a lot of people care about and it's it really matters how we communicate about that so you've probably all seen the headlines shouting life on Venus. Yes. Right? Yeah, yeah. Well, it, it it's understandable because this was picked up by every major news outlet and some of them made significant effort to do the worst job ever at reporting the actual science behind this fascinating finding. <laughs> so really, they it was like as if as if they wanted to to make it bad. So what happened? Do we have proof that there is life on our next-door neighbor Venus? Uh, not really what we have is two groups of uk and us scientists who analyze the chemical composition of the atmosphere of venus looking for trace gases it's a routine kind of research project when we look at uh, our data from um from our neighboring planets and they detected the presence of phosphine using single line millimeter waveband spectral detection and this chemical, an earth, is only known to be naturally produced by living organisms. Specifically some bacteria living in hostile and aerobic environments, like the guts of some vertebrates. Uh, now, the thing is, we do know about chemical pathways to produce phosphine artificially, but that requires very strong reducing agents. Uh, something only available in chemical factories. It is really nasty stuff, phosphine and it was used as a chemical warfare agent in world war one so what we really have discovered is that there are chemical factories on venus that's right that's right so (laughs) that is one explanation but as far (laughs) as we can tell based on current scientific knowledge there are no chemical factories at work on the surface of venus but at least we have further proof that venus has a very hostile environment because phosphine is there as well so there are basically two possibilities here apart from the one that you just mentioned one that has completely blown up and made its rounds in the news all over the world since the publication of their paper in nature astronomy it was published on the the 14th of september and that is that there might be living organisms on the second innermost planet of the solar system and they produce Phosphine and release it to the atmosphere where it was detected in temperate but hyperacidic clouds. Acidic clouds, that sounds absolutely terrible. The the other (laughs) option, of course, is a natural but abiotic origin of the molecule. The problem with that is that it really left researchers from relevant fields scratch their heads in confusion. Because, first of all, in that kind of environment that we know the the, uh, venus's atmosphere is like phosphorus should only exist in an oxidized form and not in this highly reduced format so secondly there is no known abiotic chemical pathway that could produce significant quantities of phosphine let alone so much that can be detected with telescopes from earth so even though the concentration is in the parts per billion range it still is detectable and that is significant amount so it seems obvious that the only conclusion is life on venus well i'm afraid it's a bit more complicated than that though (laughs) one of the co-authors of the study an astrophysicist from imperial college london david clemens said to snopes and i really like this quote it says it's not a smoking gun it's not even gunshot residue on the hands of your prime suspect but there is a distinct whiff of cordite in the air which may be suggesting something (laughs) <laughs> so, and in my humble opinion, this really sums sums it up perfectly. This is a moment of science finding something odd, something really off from what we expect to see. And that's basically what drives science. Science is not about those moments of instant revelation that we li- we, we like to think of it as, but rather finding out what causes something that appears to be anomaly. I think it's Isaac Asimov, to whom this is attributed mostly, that The most exciting phrase to hear in science, the one that heralds new discoveries, is not Eureka, I found it, but, oh, that's odd. (laughs) (laughs) And therefore, we must not jump to conclusions before we have exhausted all other possibilities. The idea of phosphine in the atmosphere in Venus, produced by living organisms, should not be dismissed offhand. But since it's basically an unknown environment that we have to learn a lot about, we might be able to find out what other causes uh, can lie behind this phenomenon. An inorganic pathway of some sort, maybe? Some photochemical reaction in that special environment that we haven't seen on Earth yet? Uh, There are lots of options here, and we have to investigate. Uh, It it surely has made Venus a lot more interesting in the eyes of science, uh, which is good, but it means that Venus has just become one more item on the list of potential life-bearing planets, In our solar system, which is absolutely amazing. And these are exciting times for science and for planetary science, and some fascinating science to be done in the future. But just please refrain from jumping into conclusions. It's a fascinating find, but let's investigate first.
2: (laughs) Just because we don't know why there is phosphine, it doesn't mean we have proved that there is aliens.
0: Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah, yeah.
2: That's that's right. So. Right. But it's interesting. Right. Mm-hmm. So from one, one warm place to another, uh, right? <laughs> this summer was and of course it was the warmest summer ever recorded mm-hmm. in the northern hemisphere on this planet, I should uh, point out. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> And by by summer, um, we mean uh, the months of June, July and August. This data comes from the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration in the US, the NOAA for short. Uh, I wonder if they had the Bible in mind when they created that acronym because uh, soon (laughs) we will have to build an ark of of our own to escape (laughs) the ongoing climate changes here. So this new record beats the previous two warmest summers, which were 2016 and last year 2019. And it beat the record by 1.17 degrees Celsius, which uh, to me sounds quite a lot. We're talking about average temperature here, so um, and it was even worse in some regions uh, with northern Asia being three degrees above and Russia two degrees Celsius warmer. And we've, we hear about the fires in California and Oregon a lot, but let's not forget the big wildfires in Siberia this summer. We talked about that and it's all connected, people. There are still uh, climate change deniers, though. Fair enough. Most of them have shifted away from the first position, which was that there is no change. They are now at the second position, which is that it's not man-made, and soon enough it will go away. But uh, very soon they will go to the third level. Okay, it is happening, and okay, it is our fault, but we can't do anything about it. Well. If it's true that we can't do anything about it, it is just because of the attitude of people like that.
1: Way. (laughs) Okay, because we're all very happy now, I think I should go on with another topic that also makes us very happy, Mm. and that is that... There's a new study looking at vaccine hesitancy, (laughs) otherwise known um, or like not always known under that term, but also known as anti-vax. And I think like we're all waiting for a vaccine against COVID, for example. And as the study or like the writer rightfully put it, that's only half of the work, right? So like developing the vaccine is only half of the work because it has to be used, Otherwise, it won't be effective.
0: Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> if it's not effective if you're just looking at it or just thinking about it. Yeah. Yeah. You have to administer it. It's
1: like it has to be in, in bodies to, <laughs> to actually yeah. do its thing. And the study actually looked at the world's most troubling vaccine hesitancy spots. So where people are most skeptical of vaccines. And they say the vaccine or the vaccination uptake is usually monitored by the World Health Organization and other organizations like that. Um, They just wanted to find out why these decisions are made and also if if there was a change in between that. And they analyzed surveys and interviews from 2015 to 2019 from around the world and looked also at the demographics of the countries. And they saw that there are growing fears of vaccine. For example, two years ago, 64% of all of Polish citizens strongly agreed that vaccines are safe. And now it's down to 53%. Mm. So wow. they lost 11%. <laughs> but for example, France improved from um, one to f- saying that a vaccine is safe to one to three, one of three. <laughs> wow. So, That's good news. Yeah. Um, they say most of the EU's confidence in vaccine has climbed, but there's still a long way to go. Like, France is still very skeptical of vaccines. Um, the Ukraine is still pretty skeptical. And they say, especially in a pandemic, it's important to inform the people well, to, to like reach the gray zone, so to say, because in a global pandemic, it's it's vital that these vaccines are used and administered. <laughs>
2: I'm happy to hear that it's changing a little bit in France going up because France has been very hesitant when it comes to vaccines yeah. for a long time. They have mandatory vaccinations for a lot of things, but they are... So they have a good vaccination rate normally, but it's not because they like it. It's because mm. they are forced to. Yeah. Okay. The Good Thinking Society has done a tremendous job in fighting homeopathy in the UK They have put uh, attention to the fact uh, that homeopathy has not passed any rigorous scientific tests to prove that it works, and uh, they have made the NHS, the National Health Services, change their policy. The NHS has decided not to fund homeopathy through public means. That It shouldn't be there. It's not prohibited. You can still buy homeopathy, but it shouldn't be uh, publicly funded. And that I believe that that has also inspired France to do the same thing. Uh, so, of course, this is, a, as I said, a big win for, for the Good Thinking Society. But now we have to make sure that people actually follow the rules. It's always been hard for me to understand, but there are actually real doctors, quote unquote, proper MDs or supposedly. Who also believe in homeopathy. And a new investigation shows that during last year, 2019, there were over 2,100 prescriptions filled in by uh, UK doctors. Uh, That was then, as of course it was, uh, by a doctor, subsidized by the NHS against the rules. And the estimated cost for this in 2019 was £46,000. And it's not over. It continues to happen this year. For the first half of 2020, there was 554 such prescriptions. Uh, But that means it seems to be going down a little bit. But um, we have to keep looking at this so it really uh, takes hold and, and uh, people follow the rules. We are, of course, still waiting for the health minister in Germany to grow a spine, <laughs> or should I say a span, <laughs> and follow the example of the UK and France. And that's Jens Spahn, of course. And we know that he was, he was looking at this at one point, but then he backed away. But Jens, if you're listening, and I know you are, <laughs> just get your act together and do it. We are counting on you.
1: Yes, do it. Do it. Machen Sie das, bitte.
2: Oh, <laughs>
0: machen Sie das, bitte. <laughs> that sounded great.
1: <laughs> okay, there's a a really nice study done on seventy nine thousand and three Swedish adults. <laughs> okay, huh. and okay. Um, yeah, they started this uh, study, and the study suggests that people who stuck to a Mediterranean-like diet had better mortality outcomes, regardless of their weight. Good. And
2: so you can eat the, all the pizza you want to. No, That's the, <laughs> no. Yeah? I will explain no, no. now what, ah, okay. what a
1: Mediterranean like diet is. Damn. <laughs> um, <laughs> and that is, it means you eat whole grains, uh, whole grain foods, a lot of veggies, a lot of fruits, fish, olive oil, not that much like wheat, bread and uh, industrialized stuff. Mm. And um, they say... It's still like weight loss with health improvement goals is still very hard for a lot of people to achieve. And that's why they found the study very interesting, especially because in this study, people who didn't eat that way, even if their weight was labeled normal, had higher mortality rates. So even if their weight was okay, Mm -hmm. they still died earlier. (laughs) Okay. So they said a healthy diet might be a better goal than avoidance of obesity uh-huh. because it can for most people maybe more easily uh, achieved be achieved of course not for all people like there are always financial restraints for example yeah they say that heart diseases are still worse for bigger people but they could also be a genetic factor and the issue of obesity is still very complex of course but what they definitely claim is that the Mediterranean-like diet um, is linked to good results for the brain, for the mental health, and also to for be- to better health outcomes in total. And but the downsides, as I already mentioned, would be that it's not always affordable to eat like that, um, not for everyone. That also can be linked to the fact that people who already ate the Mediterranean-like diet were often higher educated, living with other people and doing exercise. So what you can see there, it's probably not only the diet alone, <laughs> yeah, but right. a healthier lifestyle in total.
2: <laughs> exactly. Yeah. And it's hard, very hard to isolate those factors, yeah. of course. Yeah.
1: Exactly. Yeah. But something everybody could take out of that is maybe that focusing on types of foods rather than portions seems beneficial. And focusing on healthy food choices when and if we can um, is definitely more healthy than shaming and guilt tripping ourselves.
0: Absolutely.
2: But what I take away from this, and I resent it really, is that pizza is not a Mediterranean no. diet, <laughs> and that that ruins a lot of my worldview. But I have to believe you. That.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yes.
2: All right, so over to some uh, more lighthearted news now uh, because we need it, and this is pretty fun I think. And I think we mention it every year and I think we should continue to do so. Every year at Harvard in the US, the magazine called Annals of Improbable Research announces the winners of the Ig Nobel Prizes, which of course is funny, but still serious. Mm -hmm. And it's a spoof on the Nobel Prizes, of course. Uh, the Ig Nobel Prizes famously go to, quote, honor achievements that first make people laugh and then make them think, end quote. So this is research that probably would not get the real Nobel Prize, but is still fun and worth giving attention to. So I thought we need to mention the what has happened this year because they were recently announced. Who won, you might wonder, in 2020? Well. The Materials Science Prize went to the US and the UK to a group that had investigated the old myth that an Inuit in Alaska back in the 40s manufactured a knife out of his own feces, a frozen feces that is, <laughs> and used it to kill and butcher his dog to uh, get food to survive. And I think there's more than one question here. There's a question of hygiene as well. <laughs> Don't you think using poop to prepare food? <laughs> but anyway, The group tried it, believe it or not, using feces from test persons who, to make it scientific, had lived uh, on a typical Inuit diet. But there's no need for you to try this at home, folks. doesn't work. They concluded. The researchers report that the so-called knives were very blunt and melted when used. Oh,
1: yeah, because you have to live it on an, use it on a yeah on a body that is still warm, oh, warm right? Yes. <laughs> yeah, and you
2: put and you have it in your hand. and <laughs> yeah. your hand is still warm. <laughs> yeah. So. Yeah. so, so uh, we've heard about this story for a long time, but now uh, now debunked. It doesn't work. The medical education prize went to a number of politicians that we all know too well uh, for teaching the world that politicians have more immediate effect uh, on the life and death of people than scientists and doctors have. The prize was split among a lot of people. And you you will recognize the names. Bolsonaro of Brazil, Boris Johnson of the UK, (laughs) Narendra Modi of India, Andres Manuel López Obrador of Mexico and Alexander Lukashenko of uh, Belarus, Donald Trump of the US uh, and Erdogan of uh, Turkey, Putin of Russia and this guy I didn't know actually Gurbanguly Berdimuhamedov of Turkmenistan. I I didn't know this guy uh, but now he's famous because he got this prize. I was just making a reflection here. I'm sure that Trump will rate this prize just as highly as Obama's Nobel Peace Prize. <laughs> At least he got a prize this time.
0: Hasn't he been nominated? Uh, I mean, Trump. He has, yeah. Hasn't he been nominate, he, nominated for the Nobel Peace Prize himself? I
2: think he had, <laughs> he had people nominate him. That is how you should rephrase yes, it. Yes,
0: yes, okay. yes, yes.
2: The entomology prize went to Richard Vetter in the US for collecting evidence that many entomologists, which is scientists who study insects, are afraid of spiders, Mm -hmm. uh, which are not insects. Uh, They do, however, uh, love butterflies, dragonflies, ladybugs, and somewhat randomly porpoises, which are those dolphin-like mammals that are not dolphins. Mm -hmm. So now we know that. Then we have a very interesting one, the management prize. Rather controversially, it went to five professional hitmen in China for managing a contract for a hit job. That is a murder performed for money. And they managed it in the following way. After accepting 2 million yuan in payment to perform the murder, the first guy subcontracted it to a second guy for 1 million. And this guy in turn hired a third guy for 270,000 yuan, who hired a fourth guy for 200,000, who in turn hired guy number 5 for 400,000 yuan. None of them in the end went through with the murder. <laughs> <laughs> so so that that's good management it I is. think also for the outcome that nobody got killed in the end. <laughs> then I have a partly Swedish winner of the next prize the the acoustics prize uh, he the Swedish guy was part of an international team and he is based in lund actually, just uh, twenty kilometers from where I live. Uh, the other four are from Austria, Japan, the u s and Switzerland anyway. It was to test the sound that alligators make when they roar, and the specific find was that an alligator's roar, just like that of birds and mammals, gets a higher pitch if the alligator has inhaled helium. (laughs) And this, interestingly, is not the case with all animals. For example, famously, it doesn't apply to frogs for some reason. Uh, And without going into the details that I may not have understood, it means that alligators, just like birds and us mammals, use our voices to communicate how big we are, which frogs do not do. And uh, this new find, also they say, uh, is a strong indication that it was the same for the dinosaurs. So that's
0: interesting. It has a different reason, actually. Um, I mean, frogs not being affected by it. They have a different way of making a noise uh they don't use any kind of vocal cord like organ because they don't have it right and they don't use their uh, lungs for the purpose of of making noises they actually don't inhale they they swallow the air and uh that's that's how they are uh they they breathe Mm, interesting interesting when it comes outside they swallow a little bit of air and uh, then there are these air sacs that uh, you can see often when you you see uh, frogs on the water uh, making some noise yeah so that is why it's different
2: all right, good. We will look for you in the future Ig Nobel Prize lists and see if, if what your research <laughs> will come to. <laughs> there was another politically related case, apart from the Medical Education Prize, and that was the Peace Prize. Uh, and it went to the governments of India and Pakistan for having their diplomats surreptitiously ring each other's doorbells in the middle of the night and then run away before anyone had a chance to answer the door. I'm not sure quite how that contributes to peace, but uh, I found it <laughs> rather interesting. Uh, the Psychology Prize went to researchers in Canada and in, in, in the US for devising a method to identify narcissists using uh, the shape of their eyebrows. The physics prize went to Australia, Ukraine, France, Italy, Germany, UK and South Africa for the groundbreaking research that re- determined experimentally what happens to the shape of a living earthworm when one vibrates them at high frequencies. <laughs> <laughs> then we have Poor the things. economics prize. <laughs> yeah. They, they are actually assured that no, no earthworms were harmed in the research. Yeah, that's of course what I say. Nobody complained, anyway. Anyway,
1: no one complained.
2: That I can believe. <laughs> yes, <laughs> the economics prize went to an international research endeavor taking place in the UK, Poland, France, Brazil, Chile, Colombia, Australia, Italy, and Norway for trying to quantify the relationship between different countries' national income inequality and the average amount of mouth-to-mouth kissing. And apparently, the bigger the inequality, the more time people spend kissing each other on the mouth. And last but not least, the medicine prize went to a team in the Netherlands and in Belgium for diagnosing a long unrecognized medical condition, which is called now misophonia. That is the distress that people uh, feel when hearing other people making shooing noises
0: yeah i know that feeling yeah (laughs) you you, do you suffer from misophonia yes yes i get really irritated yeah (laughs) okay all right thank you very much and uh this has been all the news that, uh, that 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 we wanted to share with our listeners so it's time for us to move on to finding out who's been really wrong lately
2: We know as skeptics that there have been countless experiments on prayers and whether they help or not, and uh, spoiler, uh, they don't. Uh, one famous study from the us actually showed that seriously ill people who were prayed for actually lived shorter, but um, the reason was probably that they knew about that people were praying for them, so they gave up earlier. I, that that's speculation, but <laughs> anyway, it doesn't there's no reason to believe that uh, praying for something works but that's of course my opinion there is at least one guy who disagrees with me and his name is richard gamble and he plans to do something about it uh, something stupid if you could get 9.3 million pounds and you wanted to make a difference what project would you put that money into our friend richard has drummed up Uh, that amount, and he will build a huge monument just outside Birmingham in the UK to celebrate answered prayers. He is building a 51 meter high monstrosity that is going to be called the Eternal Wall of Answered Prayers. (laughs) It will be built out of 1 million bricks, each one representing the personal story of a prayer supplied by the public. And there will be an app to look up each and every one. And you can classify them and have lists back and forth. Um, Richard Gamble has set up three goals for this nonsense. The first one is to, quote, preserve the Christian heritage of the nation. End quote. The other is to encourage prayer. And the third is to proclaim Jesus for the country. Those are not even proper goals. (laughs) I don't know if you have you been working with projects and organization and been tasked with setting up goals for 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 the organization, Mm -hmm. if you if so, you may have come across a principle that is called SMART or SMART goals, and SMART stands for specific, measurable, attainable, relevant, and time-based, and and these are not. (laughs) Proclaim Jesus for the country. What kind of a goal is that?
1: So will that just be like one brick on another, 51 meters high? Actually it will be quite,
2: I I hate to admit it, but actually I think that the the shape of it will be pretty uh, spectacular. It's a a big mebius uh, band. Uh, uh, made out of bricks. You should look it up uh, just to see the shape of it. Um, But that's the only thing good with it. But there is another aspect of this as well. Richard Gamble has this project and he has projected that he will have 300,000 visitors per year at this place. And there will be souvenirs and cafes and whatnot. So not only is this a totally useless thing and it spreads the notion that prayers work but also, Mr. Gamble is most likely betting that his gamble will make him rich. So this, in my opinion, is the UK's answer to Ken Ham's stupid ARK encounter in Kentucky. <laughs> and I, um, I I thought we wouldn't have that kind of nonsense here in Europe. Uh, but I hope, economically, it goes just as well at, as, as it has for, for the ARK encounter, which is losing money quite a lot. Yeah, so I thought this was a really stupid thing to invest in. If you want to make a difference, why build a fucking monument to answered prayers when we know that prayers do not work? That That's crazy.
1: Definitely. <laughs>
2: yeah. So to round things up here, for spending millions to celebrate something that demonstrably doesn't work, cannot work, Instead of doing something useful, Richard Gamble and the North Warwickshire Borough Council Planning Committee, uh, that was the ones that approved of the project, they all get today's prize for being really wrong.
0: All right. Oh, well well-deserved, deserved. yeah. <laughs> yeah, another well-deserved, really wrong prize. Thank you very much, Pontus. And that concludes our show. But before we go, I'd like to share a quote with you. Yay! And the quote comes from German physicist and Nobel laureate Werner Karl Heisenberg. Sorry for the bad pronunciation. And he was, he's one of the founders of the field of quantum mechanics. So I think he knows what he's talking about when he says... Yeah, he had his principle. <laughs> yeah.
1: <laughs> yes. Heisenberg-Schonstärfe-Relation. <laughs> yes. So I think he
0: knew exactly what he was talking about when he said the, the, the following. An expert is someone who knows some of the worst mistakes that can be made in his subject and how to avoid them. Ah, okay. So Yeah, that's good. <laughs> yeah. it's. I think it's a fundamental thing about science that, that you want to avoid mistakes and self-correction and, and continuous correction of things. So thank you very much for Mr. Heisenberg. Thank you. And thank you, Annika and Pontus, for joining me today. Thank you. Thanks a lot. <laughs> I'd like to thank our listeners as well for tuning in. Please keep doing so. And until next week, goodbye. Tschüss! Hello! You
1: told me that really
0: This has been your ESP experience. The show is produced and recorded by the ESP.eu. All music in the program was written and performed by Keisha J. Gray and George Shrub and is used with their permission. Please check out our webpage at theesp.eu, follow us on Twitter at espodcast underscore EU, and like us on Facebook. I don't know
1: how you can believe.
0: What's going on, Pod?
2: Somebody started to print something <laughs> from upstairs.
0: <laughs> Hopefully, it's not really too long. Really cool. Your book. It's your book. It's <laughs> my book, yeah.
1: 700 pages later. All
0: 50, 50
2: chapters of it. But I am. Okay. we do podcast and both. Hi, Leo. I told him he's, he was now part of the podcast. So. <laughs> <laughs> good, good. So the NHS has adopted this new policy that not
0: uh, ah that doesn't work at all. And you have it scripted. Yeah, that's funny. Yeah, but I'm trying <laughs> to change it,
1: and that makes it difficult. Ah, mm, mm. on the fly editing.